Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Regular listeners will know that one of our more common topics of discussion here on Animals Today is pit bulls. And there are a couple reasons for that. One being that Peter and I happen to be fans of pit bulls and pit bull mixes. I just think they're so beautiful and lovable. But even more, they're just so controversial. There are abundant misconceptions about their behaviors. There are ordinances against them in cities and towns in the U.S. and Canada. Overall, I just believe, as many do, they get a bad rap. Dog fighting, which of course is illegal. The dogs employed there are are pit bulls, not because of any innate aggression, but because their owners train them and force them to do battle. Consequently, many of them end up in shelters. Many shelters around the U.S. are filled with them, and they get euthanized in huge numbers. I broadcast a few interviews pertinent to pit bulls that I think you will find of interest. Victoria Voith is professor at Western University of Health Sciences, and her primary area of research was in visual breed identification of dogs. And she got interested in this topic when she was working at various shelters and noticed that there was a diversity of opinions of shelter workers when trying to identify the makeup or breed of dogs. So she studied the relationship between the visual identification of the dogs, what breed a dog or mixed breed a dog is, determined by someone's perception and the identification of the dogs determined by DNA. And her studies showed that most of the time, in fact, 75% of the time, there was misidentification of the dog. So what a person thinks a dog is by their looks did not match the DNA of the dog 75% of the time. She explained that people working at shelters or rescue groups are often required by management to try to label or identify the dogs that enter the shelter. So they're instructed to pretty much guess what they think the breed of dog is, or at least guess at what they think its predominant breed is, and then call it a mix of that breed. And she says what people do is they look at a certain feature of a dog that they perceive to be a feature of a specific breed, and they identify it with that purebred dog. And there are harmful consequences of mislabeling or misidentifying dogs. It might affect the success of the adoption of the dog from the shelter, right? A dog labeled as, let's say, a pit bull mix might not even be considered by some adopters when looking for a dog at a shelter. Misidentification of dogs can affect how dogs are treated by the shelter workers. Maybe the shelter has a policy that certain breeds of dogs are considered less adoptable and therefore euthanized earlier than others would be. And misidentifying dogs might affect how the adopter treats that particular dog. And as you probably know, there's legislation that subjects certain breeds of dogs to discrimination, like being prohibited from apartment buildings or even banned in towns and cities. And this might cause people to relinquish or return their dogs back to the shelter. So mislabeling dogs can indeed have negative consequences. Victoria spoke a little bit about breed-specific legislation, which is typically created to increase public safety by decreasing number of dog bites. But she explained the problem is that the data we use to make these laws or policies are based on people's perceptions of what the dog breeds are, which could have been tabulated from vet office records, emergency room records, shelters, and really we have no idea as to how 
accurate or valid this information is when they are entered in the databases or written in the research papers. For instance, say data is obtained from emergency room records, people coming into the emergency room because they were bitten and are being treated for a dog bite. And the ER has to record the dog bites that they see. They record the, the number of dog bites that they treat. They will ask you the kind of dog or breed of dog that bit you. And again, this information is based on someone's perception, which as she showed is more times than not inaccurate. So can you really say that pit bulls bite or attack more than other breeds of dogs? And we know breed specific legislation almost always pertains to pit bulls or pit bull mixes. And that is a problem in itself, she explained, because first of all, we don't even know what a pit bull is. It's really not a breed. It's a, a term used for a particular phenotype based on a, a look of the dog or a specific feature. Moving on to another researcher I spoke with last year, Lisa Gunter. Lisa conducted some studies to show how our perception of specific breeds of dogs and how our perceptions about the characteristics of individual dogs can be influenced by many factors. In one of her studies, participants were shown pictures of three kinds of dogs, a Labrador, Border Collie, and a Pit Bull type dog without labels. So they were shown pictures of these three dogs and asked about their perceptions of the dogs, specifically the dog's approachability, intelligence, aggressiveness, friendliness, adoptability, and difficulty to train. And what she found was the pit bull was rated unfavorably in every characteristic. The lowest rating in friendliness, adoptability, approachability, and intelligence, and highest in aggressiveness and difficulty to train. So the pit bull was the least attractive dog compared to the Border Collie and Labrador. But then what she did was she placed a handler with the dog to find out if a picture of a handler with the dog affects the person's perception of the same dog they just saw. So she compared how they rated the dog when the dog was alone in the picture compared to when a handler was with the dog. And specifically with respect to the pit bulls, the participants were shown a picture of a pit bull and an elderly woman a pit bull with a rough-looking adult male, and then a picture of a pit bull with a child. And in fact, there was a big difference in the ratings when there was a handler with the pit bull. Specifically, the pit bull's ratings improved when the dog was photographed with the elderly woman or the child. It improved the dog's approachability, friendliness, adoptability, and intelligence, and decreased the aggressiveness. So obviously this can be applicable to shelters. I mean, if you run a shelter and your goal is to increase the chance of your pit bulls or pit bull mixes of being adopted, then you can improve the attractiveness of the dogs to potential adopters if the dog were photographed with a specific handler. Okay, so next, since we know by Lisa's study that pit bulls are viewed as least attractive dog when compared to other kinds of dogs, and because visual identification of a dog is not accurate, Lisa wanted to see what happens to pit bull dogs if they were labeled differently, not as pit bulls. So she had the photographs of the pit bull type dogs, and she found their lookalikes, right? So she found dogs with very similar stature, color, head size, coat length, and photographed these lookalikes, but labeled them as some other breed, like shepherd or boxer, but not as pit bulls. So you have these two sets of pictures, very similar looking dogs, pit bulls and their lookalikes, but one labeled as pit bulls and the others labeled something else. And what she found was the dogs labeled as pit bulls had three times the length of stay in shelters as compared to their lookalike dogs. So here again, labeling a dog as a pit bull decreases the dog's attractiveness. 
And related to this, and this is very interesting, a couple years ago, the Orange County Animal Services in Florida wanted to see what would happen if they removed the breed labels of the dogs housed in that shelter. So potential adopters would come in looking for dog. They could meet the dogs. They can get to know them. They can get to know their personalities. But the dogs had no breed label attached to them. And no breed or type of dog was written on the kennel card or adoption profiles. And Lisa analyzed this data and compared, and if I'm remembering correctly, two years worth of data. The first year was when the dogs were labeled, and then the following year after they removed the labels from the dogs. And what Lisa found was when the labels were removed, adoptions for pit bulls increased by 72%, and there was a 12% reduction in euthanasia. But also, all dogs in the shelter benefited when labels were removed, with an overall 30% increase in adoption. Now, you should know there were other operational changes occurring at the shelter at this time, like they were advertising more, they had expanded their operating hours, but the benefit for the pit bull group by removing the labels was much larger than what the other groups of dogs had seen. Also, the average length of stay decreased without the breed labels for every group of dog as well. Very interesting stuff, right? Okay, since we're talking about pit bulls, let's talk for a minute or two about breed-specific legislation. Breed-specific legislation are laws and ordinances aimed at forbidding or regulating dog ownership based solely on breed or type of dog, typically done with the intention of reducing dog bites or dog attacks. Examples of breed-specific legislation, Denver and Miami had a ban on pit bulls, meaning it's unlawful to own or possess a pit bull. In San Francisco, legislation is in place that mandates the sterilization of pit bulls. A few years ago, an ordinance was passed right here where I live, in unincorporated areas of Riverside County, similar to San Francisco, that requires pit bull and pit bull mixes to be fixed. According to one of our prior guests, Stacy Coleman, who is executive director of the National Research Canine Council, whose mission is in part to publish accurate, documented, reliable research to promote a better understanding of our relationship with dogs, it's been shown that breed-specific legislation does not enhance public safety or reduce dog bite incidents. And many people do believe this, as I do. And there's this growing awareness now that breed-specific legislation not only does not improve community safety, but are costly to enforce, penalize responsible dog owners, and harms their companion animals. And of course, it stigmatizes the breed of dog. And the NCRC states that the trend in prevention of dog bites continues to shift in favor of multifactorial approaches focusing on improved ownership practices, better understanding of dog behavior, education of parents and children regarding safety around dogs, and that the truly effective laws hold all dog owners responsible for the humane care, custody, and control of all dogs, regardless if your dog's a pit bull or a cute little Pomeranian. But as you can imagine, this is a highly debated topic, and pit bull terriers are in fact the most controversial dog alive today. You know, through our history of pit bulls and gang culture getting intertwined and the purposeful breeding, training, and abusing these dogs to fight and become vicious and aggressive, you can see why these dogs are stigmatized. 
And not only that, the media will perpetuate the stereotype because when pit bulls do bite, it's much more widely reported than attacks caused by other breeds. And this has resulted in many neighborhoods and apartment complexes and cities and counties imposing bans on pit bulls and pit bull mixes, citing them as inherently dangerous to the public. But as I mentioned, we are seeing this growing evidence that these bans are not working in terms of enhancing community safety and the repealing of pit bull has been on the rise. And I'll tell you, pit bulls, in my opinion, are highly misunderstood dogs. And just as every person is an individual, each dog is an individual and shouldn't be judged because someone guesses at their breed label and shouldn't be judged based on a physical trait or physical appearance or their past history, we should be evaluating and treating each dog, no matter its breed, as an individual. More with animals today, right after the break. Welcome back to the show. Great news for cats. New York becomes the first state to ban declawing of cats. Just last week, Governor Andrew Cuomo signed a bill that prohibits the surgical procedure called decline, and this ban takes effect immediately. Many people mistakenly believe that decline is a simple procedure that removes a cat's nails. Sadly, this is far from the truth. The term decline is really a misleading term because it's really an amputation. Declawing is a painful surgical procedure in which the veterinarian cuts off the last knuckle of a cat's paw, which is literally cutting through bone, tendons, skin, and nerves. If performed on a human being, it would be like amputating each finger at the last joint. Veterinarian pain specialists say decline can cause chronic pain. It's also associated with health risks and complications such as infection, arthritis, and an inability for the cat to walk normally because of the pain. In addition, litter box avoidance and biting have been linked to the surgery. And there's a growing number of veterinarians in the United States who refuse to perform the procedure because it's unnecessarily cruel and knowing the potential harm and problems it can cause to cats. In fact, you know what? I wouldn't entrust my dogs and cats' health care with a veterinarian who does the surgery. Would you? However, I will tell you that New York State Veterinary Medical Society opposed this ban, so they support the surgery. Now, this shouldn't surprise anyone. They want to protect their financial interests. But scratching is a healthy, natural, and important cat behavior. And there are many ways to teach your cat where to scratch and where not to scratch, including scratching posts, humane deterrence, and vinyl nail covers. So there you go. Good for New York State. And just so you know, other states are considering similar legislation, including Massachusetts, New Jersey, and California. Okay, Lori, those crafty researchers in Japan have been given permission to go ahead with this crazy line of experiments. The goal is to learn how to create a new supply of human organs for transplantation. Unfortunately, they are going to be trying to develop ways to use other animals to grow these organs in, and this is how it's going to work. They're going to start with genetically altered mouse or rat embryos. These embryos are genetically modified so that no pancreas is going to be formed as the embryo develops. 
and then they're going to place human stem cells into the fertilized eggs, and the result is what they're calling a animal-human chimeric embryo. And then these mutant embryos are going to be transplanted into the womb of female rats or mice, and then eventually human pancreases are going to start growing in these babies' bodies. Is that crazy or what? And Why then, the hell are they doing this? Well, this is the first step in trying to develop a method to grow human organs in animals. That's insane. Yes. So this is what's happening in Japan. And I don't think it's going to work, but it's really sad that they have given the green light on this. Sure is. And Lori, here is an important study published in the journal Neurology, and I think it's a good example of one of the problems in using animals for human medical research. The area that's being studied by this group out of Ohio State University, along with a consortium of other researchers from around the world, is spinal cord injury. And as you know, they use animals as a model for human spinal cord injury and then try to figure out ways to regrow the spinal cord and to get some function back. Well, what they did was they studied a lot of these studies. You know, just the thought about how they might go about these studies makes me sick to my stomach. I can just see their scientists breaking the backs and necks of little cats, dogs, and mice to get their studies started. Well, Lori, this study will uh, serve to enrage you further uh, because according to its principal investigator, Jan Schwab, he's a neurologist at Ohio State's Neurological Institute, and he led the study of the studies. Uh, he said that despite tremendous progress being made in the understanding of underlying mechanisms after spinal cord injury, subsequent bench-to-bedside translation, right, that is animals-to-people translation, mm -hmm. remains a very fragile process. Improving the predictive value of preclinical spinal cord injury research is a requirement to improve the chances for translational success. Inflated too optimistic effect sizes in animal studies will provide false leads for subsequent clinical testing. And so where is that coming from? It's coming from one source that they identified is that many of these studies are not masked. They are not blinded studies. And that causes bias in the positive effects that are seen in some of these animal studies. That leads to developing human studies that are just not that accurate. Secondly, there's another source of bias, and that is many of the negative or non-confirmatory uh, studies are never published, and that leads subsequent researchers who are developing their protocols to think that they have a better chance of obtaining a positive result in their study, and that makes them make their study too small with not enough participants and the study is basically underpowered. And I just want to bring this up just to point out a really tough problem in utilizing animals as a model for human injury. And that is something that you think you'd be able to control. And that is the uh, scientific uh, protocol and process. Well, you're right, Peter. That's so infuriating to me. It's unnecessary cruelty and suffering for these poor animals. And not to mention the point you just made that the science can be very muddy. And it makes me mad that they are even given grants to perform these studies. Yeah, you're paying for this. Exactly. There's a leaked report from the UN, actually the IPCC, you know what that is? That's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And it talks about how things are really getting bad very quickly, sort of what we expect the UN to say. But something interesting is that it is suggesting the widespread adoption of plant-based diets. The consumption of healthy and sustainable diets, it says, such as those based on grains and beans and legumes and vegetables, nuts and seeds, presents major opportunities for 
reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Humans are currently abusing about 72% of the planet's surface in order to feed and clothe our population. Half of all the methane emissions come from cattle raised for meat production, and that is a growing part of the problem. So the UN wants everyone to become vegan. How about that? Hmm. California has become the first state to ban all lead ammunition for hunting. This is great because, as you know, the lead gets into the food chain, and then innocent animals uh, eat the dead carcasses, and then they get sick and die. We have had in California a ban on using lead shot for waterfowl hunting. Not that we approve of any of this, but if you're going to have hunting, you might as well use the lead-free variety. Uh, That has worked very well. The hunters have been able to kill their waterfowl just as easily. And now this is going to be extended to hunting of land-based animals. Nearly 500 scientific papers document the dangers to wildlife from this kind of lead exposure. And often the lead fragments are so small that they're not even recognized in the dead carcasses of the animals. Anyway, California once again leads the way. You know, it's not an endorsement on hunting, but at least the innocent animals will be uh, protected from the lead poisoning. Okay, thanks, Peter. Here, listening to Animals Today. Don't go away. More with the show right after the break. You're listening to Animals Today. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. I want to remind you to visit us at animalstodayradio.com. Like us on Facebook and go to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. Each week, we bring you the latest animal news from around the globe. Animals Today is a project of the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at aianimals.org. And if you like what you hear, consider donating to our cause of promoting compassion and respect for all animals. That website again is aianimals.org. Animals Today fun facts for today are about prairie dogs. Despite their name, prairie dogs are not dogs, but members of the rodent family, like squirrels. They grow to be between 12 and 17 inches in length, and they weigh between two and four pounds. Prairie dogs are very social rodents that live in huge underground burrows called towns, where they can be tens of thousands of prairie dogs, and their tunnels can travel for miles in every direction. Prairie dogs are very affectionate towards each other and will spend a lot of time grooming each other. They will also touch noses when they approach each other like a little kiss. And these are Animals Today fun facts for the day. We are in a very exciting time for medical and biological scientific advances with true explosion of discoveries being published daily. One element of this we have been covering on Animals Today is the growing development of research methods that avoid the use of experimental animals along with their increasing implementation in that research. You know, for example, the so-called organ-on-a-chip technology in which a miniaturized organ-like system can be challenged with potential drugs or toxins or almost anything to try to understand how the organ in a whole person might react. And just last week, this type of technology was reported to take another step forward where multiple different tissues can be set up and tested in concert, and this is being called 
body on a chip. It's hoped that this will allow the researchers to observe all of the complex interactions between the tissues, which in turn would allow them to make better guesses as to what would happen when substances are introduced to a whole person. Now, we all know the limitations of animal models when developing drugs for use in people, not to mention the animal welfare concerns, and there's a lot of interest in eventually getting animals out of the equation. One of the body-on-a-chip developers, Professor Linda Griffith, stated, animals do not represent people in all facets that you need to develop drugs and understand disease. That is becoming more and more apparent as we look across all kinds of drugs. A lot of time you don't see problems with a drug, particularly something that might be widely prescribed until it goes on the market. Now, there are hindrances and constraints to these types of technologies reaching their full potential, and to address that, new federal legislation was introduced earlier this year. To tell us about it, I am pleased to welcome Monica Engebretsen. She is North America Campaign Manager for Cruelty Free International. Welcome, Monica. Thanks for having me on. So we're going to talk about this uh, legislation, which is really interesting. Why don't you give us the background from your perspective? Uh, what is this uh, seeking to address? What are the problems in the current situation? Sure. Um, so the Hearts Act, really at the heart of it, uh, is that it seeks to encourage the use of humane and effective alternatives to animals and experiments that are funded by the National Institutes of Health. So the National Institutes of Health is taxpayer-funded, it's, you know, publicly funded, and they are one of the biggest funders of animal experiments in the U.S. So it makes a lot of sense that that's an area where the public should have some say in how things are, are done. I think everybody across the board can agree that when alternatives to animals are available, they should be used. And I think that people think that that's what's happening. And when you look at some of the current regulations that are out there, it can appear that, that that's what's supposed to happen. But in fact, the law doesn't require that an alternative be used in place of an, an animal, even when it exists and has been proven to be more effective or as effective as, as, as the animal test. So what the bill does is tries to encourage the use of alternatives because the use of animals is very ingrained in biomedical research. It's, there's a real trend and um, tendency to go down the old path to do what's always been done. And so we're trying to create incentives to ensure that new technologies that are better for animals and people and more you know, humane, of course, are actually used. That's what the HEARTS Act aims to do. HEARTS is an acronym. Yeah. What's it stand for? Humane and Existing Alternatives in Research and Testing Sciences Act. So what? we're talking about using the alternatives that are already out there and to make sure that they are given priority over the animal tests. How many animals are we talking about and how much money are we talking about? The United States is the largest, across the board, a third largest user of animals and experiments. So over 13 million animals in the United States each year are used in animal experiments. Many of those are used in experiments that are funded by the National Institutes of Health. And the NIH spends at least 12 billion taxpayer dollars each year on, on those experiments. And this would affect animals, including rats and mice as well? Yeah, it includes all animals, and those are some of the animals that are, are most used in research, but it's saying because that any research involving animals, including rats and mice, because they are included under the National Institutes and in, in Public Health Service Policy, 
they must be considered. And so that if an animal, if a proposal comes into the National Institutes of Health, they have to demonstrate that they have looked for the alternatives and that they did a proper search. And in, in doing that, and so it gets a little complicated in there because it, it's one thing to say, oh, yeah, I looked for the alternatives, but how did you do a search? How how well did you actually actually um, look? And, and the people reviewing your proposal, do they have expertise and alternatives? So do they know if the reason you're saying that the alternative couldn't be used is a legitimate use? So we're really drilling down on making sure that scientists are considering these um, non-animal alternatives and explaining why, if they think that an animal needs to be used, really explaining why and what is the benefit going to be. And that's why we're asking them to um, standardize how the search is done, to give an, a statement saying that, yes, they, they did the search, and also that if an animal is still required, they still think the animal's used, they have to give a statement of assurance that there isn't a non-animal method available, and to do a harm-benefit analysis, which is something that has been re required in the UK since 1986, and it's not something we do here that really asks the question, is this worth knowing? There's lots of information that we get from maybe animal research that's nice to know, but what's the real benefit? Is it worth the suffering, pain, and expense of doing? And that question really doesn't always get answered or asked. And um, so we're, we're trying to really drill down on on those aspects. Of course, we would all like to do a bill that would completely phase out the use of animal testing, but we have to do this incremental approach when we're changing an entire system. So we have to go at where we can by saying, let's make sure that the alternatives are always used and that scientists that are asking for public money are being held accountable for the experiments that they're asking us to fund. We should talk about the Institutional Animal Care and Use Committees. That's precisely what you're talking about. And this bill goes right into the heart of their operation and, and requires them to yep. change how they operate. The Institutional Animal Care and Use Committees are set up to, they are supposed to be the bodies at each university or research facility, usually it's the university, that are supposed to review and a research application, and they do, but what we have, and they are supposed to determine, one of the things the researcher is supposed to do is to consider alternatives. Now, that's a really low bar to begin with. It's not a requirement, it's consider. And the problem is, is even the USDA, the, the government's own reporting on how, I, uh, how these institutional animal care and use committees work, they have found time and again that one of the most common shortcomings in the IACUC is what we call them review, is failure to do a literature search for alternatives and failure to um, prove that their, their research proposal on animals is not duplicative, hasn't already been done, and that there isn't a replacement for it. So they're finding that the committee themselves isn't requiring, you know, isn't being rigorous enough in, in making sure that alternatives are considered. And one of the reasons for this, you can see that animal research brings in lots of money uh, to a university. So the university and the university, the facilities itself, decides who sits on these institutional animal care and use committees. So you can see that you could set up a real conflict of interest in, de in deciding to approve research proposals that will bring money into the institute rather than telling the researcher to go back and that they didn't do a proper literature search for alternatives or really questioning them. And in some cases, members of the committee might be subservient 
to the researcher that's doing the proposal. So they are in a you know in a position to either tell their colleague that they're rejecting their proposal or somebody who they answer to. And even the attending veterinarian often doesn't have tenure at these facilities. So if they create too much of a, a problem, they can be fired. And so what it does is it adds this, it, it solves that problem by saying that the National Institutes of Health themselves are going to set a criteria for what needs to be done in order to constitute a search for alternatives and that those reviewing will have somebody who is an expert in alternatives and an expert in what they call a research librarian, which can tell them whether or not the search for alternatives was adequate enough. So what is the status of this bill now? I see a a couple of sponsors and co-sponsors. Where are we? So it's been introduced and assigned to a committee and um, gathering co-sponsors. I think we're up to around 11 or 12 co-sponsors. So it hasn't had a hearing yet. And um, that's not unusual for a new bill to not have moved on to a hearing level. So it's been introduced and conversations are happening at the most recent NIH um, meeting Congresswoman Roy Ball Allard asked some questions directly to the National Institutes of Health director that had to do with this bill. So um, it's already having an an effect in putting the NIH on notice that this is important, important enough for a bill to be introduced, that we're really looking at how things are operating and how animal experiments are being approved and funded through the NIH. So this is the part in the legislative cycle where individuals can contact their representatives and say, please be a co-sponsor. That's exactly right. And it's as we've kind of talked about, it's it's complicated because it's getting at reforming the entire process. But taken, you know, at a, another level, all we're really asking to do is that alternatives, when they're available, they should be used. And I think that's a unifying message. It's a simple message. But how we get to making sure that happens is in the details of the bill. And we have fact sheets to help explain, you know, the problems of that. And if anybody wants to know more information about why the system currently doesn't work as it's supposed to and why an animal experiment would be approved, even if there's an alternative, I really encourage everyone to read a book by Dr. John Gluck, who was a former primate researcher and he wrote a book called Voracious Science and Vulnerable Animals. And in there, he really spells out, as somebody who served on many of these institutional animal care and use committees, the problems and the loopholes in the system. And he has fully supported this bill and thought it called it something that's been needed for a long time to close gaps in existing law and make sure that humane research is the priority in the United States. Monica Engelbretson with Cruelty Free International. Thank you very much for coming on Animals Today. Thank you for having me. More with Animals Today right after the break. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Well, uh, I had an interesting animal sighting recently I want to share with you. Uh, I was in Arizona attending a conference, and uh, 
staying at this hotel. And on the grounds, I see this like family, maybe seven or eight. They look like like pigs. They look like wild pigs or something like that. And they're just walking along the grounds, happy. There's a couple small ones. They seem very adapted to the people walking by. Took a video and then shared it with Lori when I returned. And, and uh, well, Lori, you saw these... I don't know what they were. I thought they were pigs, but what, what was I looking at? Peter, they were javelina. Javelina. And I've never seen javelina before, so I wanted to educate myself about these interesting and I think adorable looking animals. I went to the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum website, since you were in Arizona, I thought that was appropriate. And javelina are also known as collared peccaries, which are a separate family from common pigs because of anatomical differences. But indeed, they do look like wild boar or pigs. They have mainly short, coarse, salt and pepper colored hair, short legs, and a pig-like nose. The hair around the neck and shoulder area is lighter in color, giving it the look of a collar. Javelina have long, sharp canine teeth which protrude from the jaws about an inch. Javelina live in large family groups. I know you said you saw about eight or nine of them, and this is one major adaptation that they have for survival. The average group size is about 10 or less. They communicate with their own family group and other groups using sounds and smells. The adult Javelina stand about two feet tall, about the size of an average pig. But as you said, you also saw some juveniles. Juveniles are young ones, exactly. In terms of their habitat, javelina live in desert washes, saguaro and palo verde forests, oak woodlands, and grasslands with mixed shrub and cacti. They could be found in the deserts of southeast Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and southward through Mexico and Central America and into northern Argentina. Javelina are classified as herbivores. They eat a variety of native plant foods such as agave, mesquite beans, and prickly pear, as well as roots, tubers, and other green vegetation. Now, the main predators of javelina are mountain lions, humans, coyotes, bobcats, and jaguars. In the heat of the day, javelina rest in the shade of a mesquite tree or under rocky outcroppings. And in the wild, javelina live to be about 10 years old, although some live longer. And a little interesting fact here, Peter, javelina have a scent gland on the top of their rump covered by long hairs, and they'll rub their scent on rocks and tree stumps to mark their territory, as well as rubbing the scent on each other to help with identification. So now that you know all about javelina... Is it time for a break? No, it's time for a quiz. You had a feeling? To see how much you know about other animals. This is going to be a new segment for animals today. I'm going to call this the lightning round Mm. animal quiz. Torture method C. So I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions very fast. You're going to answer them as fast as you can. If you don't know the answer, say pass, or you can guess. Okay. Ready? Listeners are going to play along, try to beat Peter, and here we go. What is the name of the phobia that involves an abnormal fear of spiders? Oh, arachnophobia. Correct. Bees are found on every continent of Earth except for one. Which is it? Oh, Antarctica. Very good. Right. right. What is the fastest land animal in the world? A lep... mm. Uh, cheetah? Cheetahs, correct, can reach speeds up to 75 miles per hour. A doe is what kind of animal? Doe is a deer. A female deer, correct. True or false, cougars are herbivores. Cougars, oh no, false. False is correct, they are carnivores. Yeah. Group of lions are known as what? A pride of Correct, lions. correct, prides. How many pairs of wings does a bee have? A bee has two pair. Correct. What are baby goats called? Baby goat is goatee, I don't know. 
kids. The crocodile species is believed to have been around for how long? Two million years or 200 million years? 200 million. Very good. Mammals that lay eggs rather than bearing live young are called what? Oh, uh, boy. Uh, pass. Monotremes. How many humps does a Bactrian camel have? Mm. Pass. Two humps. <laughs> one. I would have guessed one. True or false, hummingbirds are very agile and have good control when they fly. However, they are unable to fly backwards. That is false. False is correct. They can fly backwards. A group of frogs is called what? Frog. Don't know. An army. A female donkey is called a what? Um, don't know what that is. A Jenny. Michael Bond created what famous bear? How many bear? Smoky bear. The Paddington bear. True or false? Sea otters hold hands when they sleep to keep from drifting apart. That's true. I've seen that. I've true, seen is, yeah. true is correct. Yes. Aren't those pictures cute? What animal is the symbol of long life in Korea? The swan. The deer. Mm. Cats headbutt people because they make them feel safe or they trust them. True or false? Oh, that's true. That is true. True or false? Koala bears are bears. That is false. False. They're marsupials. True or false? A group of porcupines is mm. called a prickle. Prickle. That is funny. True. True is correct. Okay. What animal is the icon of Australia's most southern state, Tasmania? The Tasmanian devil. Correct. Alphabetically, what animal comes first in the Chinese horoscope? <laughs> the albatross. Boar. Boar. Alphabetically, what animal comes last in the Chinese horoscope? The zebra. No, not zebra. Tiger. What is the largest living species of lizard? Komodo dragon, green anole, gila monster. The uh, Komodo dragon. Correct. Yeah, yeah. True or false, the bat is the only mammal that can fly. That is true. True is correct. The female or the male lion does 90% of the hunting in the wild. Oh, I recently learned this is the female. Female is correct. What is a group of crows called? A ga a crow, a, um, not, I don't know. Were you going to say a gaggle? No, absolutely not. <laughs> a murder of crows. Oh, yeah. Nice. The, the flap of skin hanging off a moose's throat is called a bell or a waddle? A, don't know that, waddle. A bell. Mm -hmm. True or false? Butterflies can taste with their feet. I, I believe that's true. That is true. How many stomachs does a cow have? Cow. Uh, uh, five stomachs. Four. True or false? Despite the white fluffy appearance of polar bear's fur, it actually has black skin. Okay, that's true. True is correct. What kind of animal was Gentle Ben on the TV show? Gentle Ben was a big old brown bear. Bear is correct. Animals without backbones are called what? Invertebrate. Yes, that's right. Coral and algae have what kind of relationship? Uh, symbiotic relationship. Correct. Yeah. How do bees communicate with each other? Well, they have the bee, special bee dance. Dancing is correct. Lupus is the Latin name for what animal? Wolf. Wolf is right. What kind of animal is the source of mohair? The, uh, hmm, alpaca. Mohair comes from Angora goat. Mm. What type of mammals fly using echolocation? Bats, more bats. Correct. On a rabbit, where would you find a scut? On the paw? The tail. The study of animals is given the name what? Zoology. Yes. A markhor is what type of animal? Mm. A little uh, furry uh, rodent. A wild goat. A curry comb is used on what type of creature? No idea. Pass. A horse. A fluke is what kind of animal? A fish. A worm. In the Lone Ranger, what was Tonto's horse's name? Tonto, I know. Okay, Lone Ranger. Um, wind. I uh, don't know. 
Scout. Oh, yeah. On a common ladybug, what color are the spots? Black spots. Correct. Good, Peter. You did pretty good. I don't think so. Maybe 50%. 50%. It's like a B plus these days, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I'd say 50% of the listeners did better than you. Okay, Peter, thanks for playing, and thanks to the audience for playing along, and thank you for listening to Animals Today. I hope you enjoyed the show. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. The animals.